This episode of 92Y Talks features Star Trek star and beloved LGBT advocate George Takei. Starring in the new Broadway musical Allegiance, loosely based on his childhood, the social media titan sat down with Jujamson Theater's president Jordan Roth to discuss his personal new stage project, using humor to influence millions and more. The conversation was recorded on September 20th, 2015, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Hi, team. Happy to see you. I, I actually can't see anybody. I was going to say happy to see you, but I know you're there. Um, our guest tonight is best known for playing Sulu on the television series and films that launched a worldwide phenomenon and fascination, Star Trek. Bring it. A celebrated actor for more than five decades, he has over 40 feature films and hundreds of television guest starring roles to his credit. At 78 years old, he has become the unofficial king of Facebook, <laughs> counting an astounding nine million fans in his online empire, including Trekkies, Howard Stern listeners, and the LGBTQ community who devour his quirky mix of kitten jokes, Star Trek references, sci-fi fantasy memes, and heartfelt messages. He uses this powerful platform both to entertain and to advocate. Whether it's marriage equality or so-called religious freedom laws, he is there to raise his unique voice and wit to tell it like it is or like it should be. An accomplished author, his books include his autobiography, to the stars, as well as, oh my, there goes the internet, and lions and tigers and bears, the internet strikes back. He received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1986 and placed his signature and handprint at the landmark Grauman's Chinese Theater in 1991. And while there are many stars, not many stars are asteroids. In 2007, he became the namesake of an asteroid whose official scientific name is 7307 Takei. You can find it between Mars and Jupiter. <laughs> and in two weeks, he will make his triumphant Broadway debut in what he has called his legacy project, the anticipated musical Allegiance. Inspired by his own story, the show is an epic story of love, family, and heroism during the Japanese-American internment of World War II. Actor, author, social justice ad activist, social media megastar, oh my. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the great George Takei. I know you're there. <laughs> I, I mean, we got that so quick. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Now we can see you. Hi, everybody. So, hi, George. How are you? Good. 
Um, Live long and prosper. <laughs> amazing. Uh, so, George, you began your acting career in the 50s when very few Asian Americans were cast in television and film, and when they were, it was stereotypical roles. What made you ignore those odds and pursue it anyway? I think it's uh, being so passionately in love with what you want to do, mm. to act. And I had everyone discouraging me because of that rationale. Uh, it was a throw of the dice, but I passionately wanted that. But before I did what I wanted to do, I was a good son. My father was in real estate, not unlike my father, yes. <laughs> when we came out of the internment camp, he um, uh, had, first of all, a, a small employment agency to uh, help people uh, find uh, employment, Japanese Americans find employment. And then uh, he found a dry cleaning shop in uh, East LA. Uh, so from an all Japanese American envi uh, environment behind barbed wires to an all Mexican American neighborhood, he por esa razón pudo hablar español. And then he uh, got a grocery store in uh, uh, South Central Los Angeles in an African-American community. Hmm. And he had enough capital, uh, capital within four years to buy a three-bedroom home in our own neighborhood of the Mid-Wilshire District. Mm -hmm. And uh, he switched to real estate just at that time when Japanese Americans were getting back on their feet mm -hmm. and buying homes and businesses. And I he encouraged me throughout my uh, childhood. Uh, he would take me to some construction project and tell me this is going to be a great luxury hotel. And sure enough, and we looked at the excavation, and that turned into the Beverly Hilton Hotel. Or he would take Good me eye. downtown and another big excavation. He said this is going to be a major theater center, cultural center. Uh, the uh, Opera House is going to be here, and there's going to be a mid-sized theater there, and at the far end would be the larger theater. And that became the Music Center of Los Angeles. And he urged me to uh, become an architect. I think he wanted uh, to put out a sign that said, Takei Real Estate Development. Takei and Son Real Estate Development. And so like a good son, I began my college career up at Berkeley as an architecture student. But after two years as of being a good son, I wanted to be a good me, true to myself. And I came back down to Los Angeles and uh, had that heart-to-heart -heart conversation with my father. And um, I said, I want to go to New York and study at the Actors Studio. And I started to sell the actor's studio, but my father stopped me. He said, I know about the actor's studio. That's a fine, respected acting school. But uh, when you finish there, they won't give you a diploma mm -hmm. that says you're a legitimately educated person. Your mother and I want you to have that. And so if you go to UCLA here in town, they have a fine theater arts department. And when you finish there, they'll give you that diploma. But you're a bullheaded kid. You're gonna insist on going to New York. So you have to be prepared to do it all on your own. And remember, New York is a crowded place, a competitive place, and an expensive place. 
And are you ready to do it all on your own? However, if you go to UCLA in town, you'll have subsidy. <laughs> that is a deal-making dad. <laughs> Couldn't I say no to that. know all about that. I love it. Yes, I'm sure you do know um, about that. <laughs> uh, so, <clears throat> not so long after that, Star Trek. You, before you turned 30, you were cast in Star Trek, mm. right? So, three seasons, six films, lifetime of impact. Um, and of course, Star Trek was one of the very first uh, multi-ethnic casts on television. And I, I think you've said that actually you think that diversity of the cast is what made the audience connect to the show for so many decades. Why do you think that uh, the audience uh, for the show was so attracted to that when in fact society at large was not really ready to embrace diversity or wouldn't be for decades? On many levels. The uh, vision of Star Trek was to see the future in a rather utopian way. Mm. And uh, you know, it was uh, set in the year uh, uh, 2300, 300 years ahead. A huge starship soaring through the galaxies on exploratory missions. And Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, uh, had a philosophy that the strength of our society today would be uh, used as, or the enterprise would be the metaphor for our society today. And the strength of that society is in the best of the, the diversity coming together. People of different backgrounds, different cultures, different ethnicities, different faiths coming together and contributing their best and working in concert as a team and boldly going where no one had gone before. <laughs> And um, that idea, I think, on one level, attracted people because it was a turbulent time. It was a time of uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, the nation was in turmoil over the Vietnam War, and uh, there was a Cold War. And we had a Russian as a trusted member of the uh, Enterprise crew. So on that level, uh, it was very attractive. To, to see that our future can be like that. Yeah. But on another level, um, we said that, you know, so much of science fiction at that time depicted a dystopian society, a ruined society and humans groveling around in the ruins and uh, apes have taken over or robots have taken over. Roddenberry's vision was no, we will prevail. If we have confidence in our problem-solving capacity and in our innovative genius and uh, inventive uh, genius, and we can meet all those challenges and ultimately overcome. It was a hopeful future that he uh, depicted mm. at a time when uh, people had uh, a rather cynical view of our future. And so on those levels, Star Trek was a very attractive show, and I think it's still uh, popular today because of those very elements. And next year, Star Trek is going to be celebrating its 50th anniversary. What are we doing to celebrate? Well, uh, we can have a, we should have a party at the Long Acre. 
I'm at the long, well, as a matter of fact, we are having a, a Star Trek night at the Long Acre on Halloween night. Shut up. The 31st of October. All right, we are all going to that. And you can come as who you really are, as Klingons and come in full regalia or green-skinned Andorian slave girls. <laughs> or Starfleet officers. You can quit being conservative and being a, a member of American society today and come as your true selves. And we're gonna enjoy our Star Trek night. All right, we are totally doing that. <laughs> I love it. Um, now, you've actually said that the global community you've built on social media is in some ways fulfilling Gene Roddenberry's vision that you're talking about. How so? Well, now it uh, literally is a global uh, community that we have. I, I used to call you know, it the, the town uh, square where people with opinions could drag out their soapbox and get on and uh, share their opinion. I was impressed when I uh, first went to London, they have a speaker's corner at the northeast uh, uh, corner of uh, uh, Hyde Park. And uh, you have college professors as well as crazies, you know, pontificating there. Those and, are the choices. <laughs> well, that's, you know, the, that's another kind of diversity. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was a healthy thing for a community to have that. But now it's global. And we have people from Prague, Australia chiming in, or Singapore chiming in, mm -hmm. or uh, Beijing chiming in. Well, not so easily <laughs> from Beijing. <laughs> Uh, and so uh, it's a wonderful, but also a wonderful opportunity to share ideas and thoughts, but there's also the downside of that too, as there always have been. You know, we have our underbelly in our society, and that is given the same opportunity. Sure. So you gotta use it uh, with a good judgment, knowing who to respond to mm -hmm. and who to put in that category. Yeah. Well, speaking of, in addition to the king of Facebook, as we said, you've been called the funniest guy on Facebook, uh, building your huge following through humor. Um, before social media, was making people laugh a way to connect for you? It is, it is, because, you know, sometimes if you get too uh, finger-waggling, you know, you, you turn people off. Mm -hmm. And what you want to do with your finger waggling is to get them to stop and listen and perhaps consider your point of view. And how you get them to do that is by, by humor. You disarm them with humor. For example, um, there is, I think he got uh, unelected, but there was a, a, a state senator in uh, Tennessee who um, wanted to criminalize teachers for using the word gay. Now, teachers are working with young people at a point in their lives when they're making uh, discoveries about themselves, coming to some realization. And it's important that teachers be able to give them guidance and uh, uh, counsel uh, fully. And if you're saying that you can't use the word gay, and if you do, you're gonna be thrown in jail for a week and fined $300, uh, it's, it's destructive. And so you can really get intense and, and finger waggle at, at that uh, uh, state senator. But then I, I, I thought, 
Well, my name is pronounced Takei, although it frequently gets mispronounced. Takei rhymes with gay. So if it's- Handy. Handy, very handy. If you can't use the word gay, then substitute it with Takei. <laughs> and march in a Takei pride parade. <laughs> I totally love that. I'm gonna, say, I'm gonna start saying I'm Takei. <laughs> well, I did a, a documentary married. film uh, called To Be Takei. Yes. And we can all be Takei. <laughs> Come on in. Um, so you have said about social media, <clears throat> celebrities often focus on their daily lives, but here's the thing about social media. It ain't about you. Fans don't care what you're eating, where you're shopping, or what products you have to sell. So on the one hand, you have totally proven that right on your social accounts. On the other hand, let's say Kim Kardashian has over 26 million Facebook followers and basically posts all about what she's wearing, where she's shopping, and what products she has to sell. So square that for us. Well, I have a different purpose. I want to communicate ideas and comment on social or political issues. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, all these issues are not really about me. It's ultimately about us. Mm. And so I talk about us as a community, just as in Star Trek, you know, we were a team. And my larger team is uh, my friends out there. And by talking about us, we uh, have a, a genuine conversation about substantial issues mm. and sometimes, you know, light issues that we talk about lightly. Well, to that, you've said, I love this. Fans come for the cat memes and they stay for the activists. <laughs> I dig it. And of course, one of your primary areas of activism is LGBTQ equality. Now, in 2005, you and your now husband, Brad, were a hi, Brad. Um, oh, there you are. <laughs> So in, in 2005, you and Brad had been together for over 20 years when Governor Schwarzenegger vetoed same-sex marriage legislation, at prompting you to speak out in the press for the first time publicly as a gay man. There had been, of course, many moments of anti-gay legislation, anti-gay vetoes before then. So what was it about this moment and, and this action that compelled you? It was those series of... Uh experiences that kept building up and building up and building up. And by 2005, you know, I looked back at my career and I said, you know, I've had a good career. I've enjoyed it. I, it could have been better, but you know, I feel now it's time. It's time because the clock is ticking and I have to use whatever time I have left. And I didn't want to live live that rest of the time with my guard up all the time, which I had to do as a closeted actor. And so Brad and I had that discussion, particularly because I was so angry about uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, veto. And on that night, we were at home watching the news, and we saw young people pouring out onto Santa Monica Boulevard, venting their rage, and we felt the same way but we were comfortable at home. Mm. And I felt like I wasn't really being responsible 
ultimately to myself. And uh, we decided, all right, I'm prepared for my career to uh, go on the downhill side. Let's make that move. And I came out and blasted Arnold Schwarzenegger's veto. And actually, relative to your career, the reverse <laughs> of your fear happened. Exactly. Why do you think that was? The polar opposite. Uh, the times had changed. You know, uh, the California legislature was passing marriage equality bills, mm -hmm. and it was uh, Schwarzenegger that, that squelched it. But the world was changing, or at least uh, uh, the United States was changing. Massachusetts already had uh, marriage equality. It came through the courts. Yes, bravo to you, Boston. in the house. <laughs> you led the way, and thank you for that. Uh, it was changing, and uh, I, although I was prepared for my career to wane, I started getting a lot of uh, guest shots on TV series, not as a character, well, as a character, but named George Takei. And a gay George Takei. At that. <laughs> I had a new identity. And uh, so I was working more and doing that sort of uh, thing. And uh, then that phone call came from uh, Howard Stern. <laughs> and I think that too was because I had come out and been vocal. Yeah. And I got that invitation to uh, be his official announcer. And we had to, Brad and I had to talk about that too. Do we really want to go on that show? <laughs> but then we figured Howard has a vast listenership. And it's that vast listenership that we want to get to. I've been uh, speaking at colleges and other events, but they're essentially, I was essentially talking to members of the club mm -hmm. and their allies. We needed to get the other people who are, I maintain, are also decent, fair-minded people and get them to start thinking about uh, equality for everybody. And uh, it's a big gamble, but by going on the Howard Stern Show, it's gonna extract the price, but nevertheless, we will be reaching those people that we want to reach the people that are too busy you know, pursuing, making a living, sure. uh, and not thinking about other issues, but they listen to Howard. And through Howard, maybe we can get some understanding from that vast, fair-minded middle. And uh, so I decided, well, we'll agree to do that. And as it turned out, Howard was seen as, by the public generally at that time, as a homophobe, but he is not. He turned out to be a great champion for us. Mm. And uh, he did get that large middle class to rethink. And so we were able to really be much more effective by going on the Howard Stern Show, although it extracted a huge price from us. Brad was, oh, when I, got, I came home from one of the shows, he wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> I got the cold treatment, <laughs> the silent treatment. Brad, do you want to come up here and... <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> Look, this is the 92nd Street Y. I'm sure there's like seven psychiatrists. <laughs> Where are you? We are well covered. Well, he felt very well uncovered by my Howard Stern appearances. Got it. And uh, so there, there was a price I had to pay. I, I took him to various uh, special places like the boathouse for dinner to win him back. All right, well, that works. <laughs> and here he sits today, so a happy ending. Happy ending. Um, so you have said of coming out, it's not really coming out, which suggests opening a door and stepping through. It's more like a long, long walk through what began as a narrow corridor that starts to widen. I love that. What is it about that metaphor rather than the metaphor of the closet that makes more sense for you? From the time that I was in my late teens and early 20s, I knew who I was. And uh, even from before then, I would uh, go to the newsstand uh, right off of Hollywood Boulevard. And it's a half a block long newsstand. They had every per periodical. And I would go to the um, muscle magazine areas, you know, and make sure that no one's watching and, and peer through them. And when so, uh, uh, someone I recognized came down the street, I would get uh, um, uh, Time magazine and be flipping through that. Reading for the articles. Reading through the articles. Got it. Playboy, you know. Just for the reading articles. Reading the uh, interviews. But at that newsstand, I, at the far end, tucked behind, I discovered uh, the Mattachine Society's uh, publication. And this was back in the 50s. Wow. And I thought, There's, there are other people like me, and they're organized. And that was a little light in that dark corridor. You know? And then you meet other people. And that's more like coming in. And so it's a lifetime of walking down that narrow, dark corridor that gets brighter and brighter with more lights coming in as you walk down. And the corridor becomes wider. And then you discover gay bars. And you make more friends. And it becomes wider. And finally, you know, we're, we were at that point where uh, society was starting to change, and it was becoming a wide and quite brightly lit uh, corridor. And so you finally, you know, step through. So the word coming out of the closet uh, suggests that there's an immediate change. It's a long, long, gradual process. I like that very much. Now, as far as we've come, actors in particular still struggle with whether to come out and what it will do to their careers. What would you advise young actors today? Well, you know, we've uh, made tremendous advances. There are so many uh, gay actors uh, out now. And so uh, uh, I think it's more comfortable now for young actors to be who they really are than it was when I was a young beginning actor. Uh, there are certain roles where you still have difficulty being considered for casting mm -hmm. by uh, producers and directors. Uh, if it's that of an action adventure film and you're the action hero or a romantic lead, they want you to be uh, 
the image that uh, women or girls would swoon over. So those people still have difficulty, but it's even there, it's changing, particularly amongst singers. So, you know, it's not an overnight process. It takes a long time. And I'm sure we'll get to that point eventually where we can have gay action stars, you know, uh, or uh, gay leading men who are wonderful actors and can compel credibility. Uh, I think that day is coming and I think uh, it will be not too far off in the future. I intend to be uh, alive then to experience that. You and I will go to the, to the movie theater and we will watch. You have a longer path to go than <laughs> mine is kind of limited. Although I must say, my grandmother, my mother's mother, was a dynamic uh, old lady until 104. So I'm hoping I have her genes in me. Mine's almost 94 and she's right there. Well. She's an award winner. Amen. Um, so during your 2006 equality trek with the Human Rights Campaign, you likened the experience of being denied marriage equality to the internment. You said, here today, my partner and I feel the same kind of imprisonment. Can you talk to me about that connection? Well, we were incarcerated uh, right after Pearl, uh, Pearl Harbor for what we looked like and we happened to look like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor. And the nation was swept up in war hysteria. And their, their psyches had been uh, shaped by the stereotypes that uh, had been implanted in people's uh, minds, uh, either cold-hearted uh, evil villains or quiet, silent, ob obsequious servants or comic buffoons, all very unattractive uh, uh, stereotypes. We were, imp uh, we were uh, painted with a broad brush. And with the LGBT community, it was these flamboyant, over-the-top, exaggerated cartoons that they perceived gay people to be, gay LGBT people to be. And, uh, you know, the fact is we were bankers, theater producers, uh, doctors, uh, people in all walks of life. And, uh, and yet, we were seen as that one stereotype, as we were right after Pearl Harbor. We're, we were American citizens, born, raised, educated here. My mother was born in Sacramento, my father was a San Franciscan, and yet, and yet we happened to look like the people that, Pearl, uh, that bombed Pearl Harbor. And there's an element of political leadership as well. In California, we had an attorney general who obviously knew the Constitution and the law, but he was an ambitious uh, attorney general. He wanted to uh, be, uh, run for governor, and he saw that the single most popular issue was the get rid of the Japs movement. And so he got in front of it and became an outspoken advocate for getting rid of the Japs. He made this amazing statement. We've, we've, we have no reports of any sabotage activity, any spying, or any fifth column activity by the Japanese Americans. And that is ominous. 
because they are inscrutable. That was the other stereotype. You don't know what they're thinking. And so we got to lock them up before they do anything. So for him, the absence of evidence was the evidence. And he became very, very forceful in advocating that. And uh, that was also the kind of pressure that President Roosevelt had to deal with. And we had the internment. But he became very popular, became <clears throat> the uh, governor of California, and was reelected twice. The only governor to, be re uh, to, be, uh, to serve three terms mm. until Jerry Brown, the current governor, was elected. And then, uh, during his third term, he was appointed to be the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Can you guess who he was? Earl Warren. Earl Warren, the great liberal Chief Justice of the United States, was the fiery advocate of getting rid of innocent people simply because of our race. So, you know, my father, uh, when I was a teenager, I was curious about the internment, and he was explaining to me our democracy. This is years after uh, we were released. He said, our democracy is a people's democracy, and it can be, a, be as great as a people can be, but it is also as fallible as people are. And so our democracy is dependent on people who cherish the ideals of our democracy to be actively engaged in the process and hold democracy's feet to the fire to, to make it a truer democracy. And he was the one that really got me to be an activist. Because, and he took me downtown to the uh, Adlai Stevenson for President headquarters. He was a great admirer of Governor Stevenson. And he, he used to like to say, we volunteered for the uh, Stevenson campaign. But actually, he volunteered me. <laughs> and I discovered electoral politics and how important that is, but also how much fun it is working with equally passionate people, working for a man or a woman that uh, we admire and we think is going to give us the uh, leadership that's needed. Yeah. And that's why as we approach an election season, it's so important for good people to really study the candidates and then beyond that to actively engage in getting the good people elected. And beyond that, you know, to uh, volunteer and serve on campaigns. And beyond that, take time from your life and serve on public commissions and boards. That's part of the importance of our democracy. It's very fragile and it's dependent all on us. I'm so struck by what you've shared. Your father talked to you about our democracy. <coughs> Given the truly horrible things that the fallible people uh, did to him and his family, how do you think he was able to keep his faith in this democracy? You know, I'm still to this day amazed because he had everything taken from him that he had built up to, you know, the middle of his life in his 30s with a wife and three young children and to have all that taken away. And yet he was able to keep his faith in the basic fundamental 
ideals of our democracy. I owe so much to my father because there are so many people that either became embittered or stultified, silent, stony. There are some, so many young Japanese Americans, younger than me, who know that dad and mom or grandpa and grandma were in camp, that's the term, but that's all they knew. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did um, allegiance in uh, San Diego at the Old Globe Theater uh, first, and these young Japanese, young, I, by young I mean people under 50. From my vantage point, they're young. <laughs> You're a youngster. <laughs> they came up to me and said, I never knew about the internment. My parents were interned, or my grandparents were uh, interned, and that's all I knew. I learned about the anguish and the pain and the, the terror of uncertainty for the first time seeing the musical Allegiance, and thank you. So Japanese, young, younger Japanese Americans are learning about their own family history through a musical. And that's, that was so fulfilling for me to hear that we are making that kind of contribution. I think it's an important American story that all Americans should know. It was an egregious violation of our Constitution and basic human rights. But for Japanese Americans to learn something about their own family history mm. is a very fulfilling uh, uh, thing for me to realize. Yeah, there are so many um, other shameful parts of our national history that are taught so much more in classes, books, and dramatized on television and film and theater. Why, and, but not this part of our history, why do you think that has been? Well, for one thing, as I said, uh, Japanese Americans, the younger Japanese Americans, don't really know the story. And Thank you. we are at fault to an extent because um, Asian American parents want their children to go into the safe kind of areas doctors, lawyers, engineers, um, college professors, or architects. <laughs> and if their children have some interest or passion for the arts, uh, musician or painting, you know, they say, that's all right, that's good for, uh, uh, to, to have culture. But when they want to go into it, as a profession, as their career, their life, they outright discourage. They not even, you know, say, well, well, go ahead. They discourage them. And so we don't have, we didn't have the, uh, the writers and the singers and the artists uh, to venture forth. And if they did, they stayed in the safe areas dealing with uh, safe subjects. And I think it's important, that, as my father said, you have to be actively engaged in the process of democracy. And we have had an experience with democracy, and we need to deal with that issue. And from, I think, this time on, we will see many Asian American artists, writers, composers, lyricists, directors. As a matter of fact, Allegiance is directed by a Japanese-Canadian 
whose father was incarcerated in, in the Canadian internment mm -hmm. camps. And uh, we have uh, uh, people in, in our cast whose families were incarcerated. I'm the uh, only one my age in the Allegiance, and they're all younger people, and uh, they've not had that experience, but their families have had that experience. So I am very hopeful, in fact, optimistic, that uh, this story will be dealt with in many, many different forms. Uh, written by or directed by or acted by uh, people who have that internment experience as their family heritage. Mm -hmm. Now the form you've chosen for Allegiance is musical theater. Why, did, why was that the way to tell your story? Well, it's, it was fortuitous. Um, Brad and I come to New York we, our residence is in uh, Los Angeles, but we're theater people, and we come to New York, and uh, for a short period of time, we see theater every night. And uh, one night, we went to see um, Forbidden Broadway. We got there nice and early, we were seated, and two guys came in and sat in front of me, and they, one of them recognized my voice and uh, they turned around. Really? <laughs> and so we chit-chatted before the, uh, the uh, show began, and then during the, uh, the uh, intermission, we chit-chatted some more, and we went back, Brad and I went back to our apartment th uh, saying, oh, those, those guys are real passionate theater lovers. The next night, we um, went to see In the Heights by Lynn manuel Miranda. And uh, we arrived at the theater, and this time it was quite filled. And we had aisle seats, and uh, we looked down the aisle, and we saw two arms waving at us. <laughs> it was the two same guys. The night before, they were right in front of us. And the next night, they're in the same row. And we sat down, and I said, isn't that a strange coincidence? Those same guys are in the same row. And Brad whispered to me, I think they're stalking us. <laughs> the thought occurred. <laughs> well, uh, it was at that, um, near the uh, end of the first act, uh, the Puerto Rican father who loves his family and his daughter, who's very talented, wants to go to college, but can't afford to send her to college, sings this moving song, Inutil, Useless. And that uh, song moved me because it reminded me of my father's anguish in the camps. Here he had three children, and whatever decision he made was going to affect their future. Mm -hmm. And he felt that responsibility, but at the same time, he couldn't do anything radical in the interest of his children's future. And I, I'm a weeper. I was bawling. <laughs> And then the intermission comes and the lights go on and uh, the two guys came clambering over knees to chat with us and I'm quickly drying my face. And uh, one of the two, the Asian guy, uh, said, you know, why did that uh, song hit you so uh, deeply? And I told, uh, told him about my father and his sharing with me. Well, that Asian guy turned out to be Jay Kuo a com composer lyricist, and uh, the uh, Caucasian guy with him was an Italian immigrant, Lorenzo Teone, <laughs> who uh, is now our lead producer and one of the co-writers of uh, Allegiance. And uh, 
Jay is an enormously gifted uh, uh, musician, I discovered. At first, you know, I didn't know who he was, just uh, theater lovers. But uh, we chatted then during the intermission about the internment experience. And then we went out for drinks uh, the night following. I mean, that after the theater. And then we went out for dinner the following night. And we talked about it. And uh, uh, the, the idea of doing a musical, I, we bought because, uh, you know, I'm a musical theater fan too. And when he said, uh, music penetrates into the heart, it's, it hits the emotions, we, we, we agreed. But we didn't know what kind of, uh, how good a musician he was. And they went back to San Francisco and we went back to Los Angeles. But I kept up an email uh, correspondence with uh, Jay. And about um, uh, three or four weeks later, he sent a song over titled Allegiance. And there I was at my computer bawling away again. <laughs> Alas, that song is not in this version. <laughs> oh, we, the only song that's still remaining from the original reading is uh, a song titled Gamang, which is a Japanese word that means endure and with dignity, endure with fortitude. It's a powerful song, and that's what made the resilience of the Japanese-American uh, people uh, uh, possible uh, in the internment camps. And that also talks about, you know, being able to find joy under these harsh conditions. That's an important part of resilience. People found joy, friendship, love, got married, and many people were born in the internment camps. And that's what uh, our musical is about finding that love. And we have two loves. One, a dangerous, forbidden love. Sammy, the young man, falls in love with the army nurse, a white woman. An interracial affair, behind barbed wire fences, during the Second World War. The, his sister, Leia Salonga, Ah, glorious voice, wonderful actress, falls in love with a young law student who was yanked out of school and uh, is imprisoned. And when they come, uh, come to uh, draft us, after they had uh, 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 rejected us initially after the, uh, the Pearl Harbor uh, bombing, he takes great uh, umbrage with that. He becomes a leader of the resistors and uh, the sister in love with him uh, becomes one of the leaders of the resistors, thus fracturing that, that family, mm -hmm. symbolically uh, showing the fracturing of the Japanese-American community. And uh, so uh, that um, story uh, is told in music, and I discovered that Jay is an extraordinarily gifted musician. He is, he's fluent in so many musical languages. He captures, um, certainly it's a Broadway play, and these soaring love songs that transport you or break your heart. He captures the rhythms uh, of the uh, pop rhythms of the 1940s, you know, the big band sound and the bebop sound. 
He also captures the sound of Japanese folk tunes. Uh, in fact, I sing one of them with Leia Salonga. <laughs> A duet with How's that Lea for Salonga. a Broadway debut? My Broadway debut, and I'm singing a duet. Well, if you're going to do it, do it. <laughs> I am blessed. Life is amazing, and they keep surprising you. And I'm surprising myself. <laughs> I'm a shower singer, and she's a Tony-winning, internationally fabled megastar. And together you make duet. What? A duet. Love this. It's so magic. That first um, connection that you talked about with In the Heights, that was almost 10 years ago. Uh, so in these years of developing the show, what do you understand about your family and your father now that you maybe didn't when you began working on the show? On, on the show? Mm -hmm. uh, about my father? Or your family and, and your experience? Well, I begin to appreciate more their sacrifices, their strength. I, my mother was a strong lady from way back, I, from the time that we were in. Do you know that she, you know, we could take into camp only what we could carry. What was forbidden was anything sharp, anything mechanical, and we couldn't take our pets. And Yet my mother had a brand new portable sewing machine full of sharp ends and very mechanical. She didn't want to give it up. She wrapped it up in baby blanket, my, uh, my baby sister's blanket, and sweaters and covered it up with Cracker Jack boxes and animal cookies for us and put it in that duffel bag. And she marched pa past those armed MPs carrying that. And my father didn't know about it either. <laughs> She smuggled in a, a sewing machine into the camps. Wow. And we were in two of them. And so, you know, I, I, I knew my mother was a tough lady from way back then. My father was initially struck paralyzed by it. And he was really uh, stoic on that train ride, I remember. But once we got to the Arkansas camp, he uh, realized that uh, we can't be within ourselves. And he, uh, you know, it's in the swamps of Arkansas. And when it rained, the whole camp turned into a swamp, a muck. And we had to make that uh, trek to the mess hall three times a day. Elderly people could not make it. Their feet would sink, sink into the muck and they couldn't pull their feet out and young men had to carry them to the... Uh, and so he organized a uh, team of uh, men to uh, build a board, uh, boardwalk mm -hmm. connecting all the barracks to the mess hall and to the latrine, the two essential areas that we had to go to. And so my, I saw my father grow in strength in the camp, uh, faced with the challenges. And uh, then after we were released, you know, we were released with only a one-way ticket to any place in the United States that we wanted to go to and $25. We were to start our new lives with $25. And I saw him work his fingers, well, both my parents, to the bones at all those early businesses that they were in. 
I saw them struggle. Uh, at the cleaner shop, I remember, remember waking up to, the, we had a little apartment behind the cleaner shop, to the sound of the steam press, thump, shh, thump, thump, shh, thump. And I went to sleep hearing that same sound. He got very little sleep. And then the grocery store, because uh, my parents felt we can uh, let the children eat wholesale. So <laughs> it was a practical decision. But I saw them work and sacrifice, and it affected their health. I am so grateful to them for doing that. And so I see my parents as very strong people who rose to the challenges of occasion. They didn't succumb to bitterness or to stoicism. And uh, I gave my father a hard time too as a teenager because I was curious about my childhood incarceration and I tried to find something about it in books, history books and civics books and couldn't find anything about it. So I engaged my father in uh, conversation after dinner and he was one of those people that did talk about it. And that's why I knew what I know about, uh, about the uh, incarceration. Mm -hmm. But I was also an idealistic kid inspired by Dr. Martin Luther King and his, and I was active in the uh, civil rights movement. And, and, and some of our discussions became very, very heated. And there is no one more arrogant than an idealistic teenager. <laughs> During one of the discussions, I said to my father, you led us like sheep to slaughter, taking us into the internment camp. And the conversation suddenly stopped. He was silent for the longest time, and I knew I had hit a nerve, and I felt terrible. And then he said, maybe you're right, and he got up went into his bedroom and closed the door. I had heard this man who suffered so much and has, had been such an amazing father to us, and I felt awful. But he closed the door, and so I thought, well, I'll apologize tomorrow in the morning. And when morning came, it was awkward, and I never did. And the, as the time passes, it becomes even more awkward, and now I can't. And it's haunted me all my life, and in many ways I, I see allegiance as my apology to my father for having said what I said then. What do you think he'd say if he could see the show? I think he would so, be so proud. And you know, I, a couple of months ago, the marquee went up on the Long Acre Theater. And I was so moved by that because it's really my parents' story that's 
that makes up allegiance. And I felt my father and my mother both were there. And I said to Brad, my parents would be so proud. This moment is coming. And in two weeks, we'll be performing for an audience, a paying audience. And so you'll be helping me apologize to my father. We'll all be there. Thank we'll you. all be there. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Shall we take some of your questions, team? I know, right? We need a breath. That was amazing. Thank you. Um, Lorraine, via Facebook, can you identify a meaningful way for the U.S. to atone for its internment of Japanese Americans? I think it's an amazing commentary about the United States and our democratic government. In the 70s, a movement started to get an apology and redress for that unconstitutional incarceration. Congress created a congressional commission, and I was one of the many that testified at that uh, commission hearing. And it took a long time, but in 1988, President Reagan, on behalf of the United States government and the American people, formally apologized to Japanese Americans for that incarceration and pledged a $20,000 token redress. It's, it was a long fight. There was a lot of opposition. Uh, politicians claimed that we, our budget can't take it, we can't afford it, but it was much less and what they spent to get us imprisoned, build those camps, transport us, feed us during those four years. And it was a noble way of a great, confident government to recognize that. Because there are so many governments yet today that can't own up to their history, and we can't move ahead. Uh, last year, the US State Department asked me to uh, go on a speaking tour to uh, South Korea and Japan because they are our two strongest, most important allies in the Pacific. And yet they can't get along mm. because of their uh, common history. Japan had colonized South Korea for the longest time and it was a brutal colonization. And there's been only a kind of a pro forma apology. And the Koreans ha have found the issue of the comfort women to, and they're still immobilized in history. They can't come to grips as the United States did with the uh, apology in 1988. And we need to get them to work together for our American interest as allies of our interests in the, in the Pacific. And so uh, I think the fact that Ronald Reagan in 1988, uh, on behalf of the government, was able to apologize makes a great commentary about the bigness, the confidence, mm -hmm. and 
the nobility of our government and our people, the American people? Mm. Um, well, speaking of the American people, what's your, this is a question from uh, our audience, what's your take on the whole Kim Davis flap? Ah, yes. <laughs> The uh, religious Well, we're freedom. gonna get into it. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> she is an official of the government entrusted to uh, issue marriage licenses. The Supreme Court ruled that we have marriage equality now. It was a long struggle to get to that point, but it is the rule of the land from coast to coast, from border to border. We have what's called the First Amendment in our Bill of Rights. It speaks about the freedom of religion. We have that freedom of religion. And government protects everyone's freedom of religion. And therefore, government will not take sides. We will not have a government-endorsed religion because we have, we're a diverse nation of many faiths. And what's important is mutual respect. And this woman who has that job is using the power entrusted to her by the government and given that civil responsi responsibility for her own personal religious beliefs. It's unconstitutional to do that because the Constitution clearly in the First Amendment, the freedom of religion, uh, uh, clause of, uh, the first, of the First Amendment gives her uh, the power of the government, but not to use it for her personal religious faith. It's like um, a vegetarian getting a job in a steakhouse and refusing to sell, uh, serve meat. I mean, it's as ridiculous as that. She has a government uh, job, and that job is to do a certain job, issue marriage licenses that is legal. And the Supreme Court of the United States has, uh, uh, has ruled so. So uh, she's, not, she's getting, you know, she had to go to jail for that. And she came out and she insisted that, all right, well, my deputies have uh, issued those licenses, but it doesn't have my signature, so it's not legal. Well, that was uh, uh, taken to court and she failed there too. What she should do is, to do what's right, what's just, resign from that job, and let people who can do it. And she can freely practice her religion with herself and her family, <laughs> but not use the government's power to inflict it on everybody. Okay. Uh, so here's a question from Carl Ellison. Hello, Carl. Where are um, you, Carl? There ah, there, I hey, see Carl. an arm waving. Okay, science fiction <clears throat> used to be used to discuss taboo topics that society wouldn't deal with openly. Are there any taboo topics left? Well, I talked uh, very positively about Star Trek and how uh, we uh, t uh, talked about diversity being... Uh, the strength. I had a, um, a very quiet and uh, protected conversation with Gene Rodmary on that subject. We've de dealt with many issues 
Uh, we dealt with uh, the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement, uh, uh, the uh, Cold War. And this was at a party at his home, uh, a poolside party, but this was at the far end of the pool where I had this conversation just with uh, Gene. And he said, I need, uh, I've been walking a tightrope with Star Trek, dealing with these uh, issues back in the 1960s. And I need to keep the show on the air in order to be able to address the, uh, these issues. We had a groundbreaking episode in which Captain Kirk kisses Uhura, an African-American wo African woman being kissed by a white man. It was a very controversial episode. It was not aired by the Southern stations mm. in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. It was our lowest rated episode. And he said, I have to keep the show on the air in order to tell the stories and deal with the issues that I do on Star Trek. And that would mean if, it, if I dealt with uh, the gay issue, it would probably mean cancellation, death for the series. And I understood that because I was closeted at that point. And uh, I spoke as a concerned liberal with uh, Gene Roddenberry, uh, although I, I think he has his suspicions. Uh, and, and so uh, um, I understood why uh, we had to be that way. And even today now, with our feature film version, uh, and their, uh, Paramount is preparing a, a feature film for next year to celebrate our, our golden anniversary. Yes, we're gonna be back. But they still don't deal with that issue. Hmm. And uh, so I think it's gonna take a bit more time for even science fiction to be able to uh, deal with the many unspoken issues yet. We'll stay on Star Trek for a question from David. Of all the Star Trek cast, who was the funniest or had the most unique sense of humor? Uh, I think it was Jimmy Doohan, he, who played the Scotty. And he was uh, a great drinking buddy as well. <laughs> That's handy. As a matter of fact, he told me, um, he, he's really an Irish Canadian from Vancouver, but he's made a career playing a Scotsman. And he said, well, I, I qualify because I've drunk enough of the libation of Scotland. <laughs> and he did qualify. <laughs> um, continuing, we have a question from John. What was it like to work with Leonard Nimoy? We lost Leonard earlier this year, and he was a real loss. He was, many of us called him the conscience of Star Trek. Mm. He was really an extraordinary man and self-sacrificing. After we were canceled, uh, Star Trek was bought by uh, an animation firm who um, well, wanted to do Star Trek as an animated series. And initially I thought that was a great idea. Uh, with the animation form you can really create fantastical alien beings, you know, like those underwater gossamer creatures, uh, which we couldn't do with live uh, television, or fantastical civilizations, uh, soaring cities, etc. But um, for the, to do the voices, 
They claim to have a very limited budget, and they cast uh, Bill Shatner to do uh, Captain Kirk, Leonard Nimoy to do uh, Mr. Spock, and Jimmy Doohan to do uh, Scotty and all the male voices, and Major Barrett, who played Nurse Chapel, to do Nurse Chapel and all the female voices. When Leonard found out about that, he said, this isn't right because Star Trek is about diversity and the two people who most represent diversity on our cast are Nichelle Nichols and George Takei. And if they're not gonna be, be a part of this, it's not gonna be Star Trek as I know it mm. and I'm not interested in doing it. He's, he risked his own job, something very rare for an actor to do. He was prepared to, uh, to not do that because uh, Nichelle and I were not doing Sulu and, and Uhura. Mm. And because he was, uh, uh, Leonard was so essential for the uh, role of Spock that they found the money to hire the two of us. Alas, um, Walter Koenig wasn't uh, included, but because Leonard uh, pressured them, he was given the opportunity to write a script for one of the episodes. And he was a good uh, political compatriot for me uh, as well. Uh, he was the only one on the show that really discussed uh, issues. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we had, we'd have set-side com uh, uh, conversations. And uh, uh, he, we worked together on common uh, causes, common candidates that we supported. And he was a very supportive friend. Uh, when um, I did uh, Equus in Los Angeles, uh, and Leonard did it on Broadway, he, uh, it was uh, first played by, I think, uh, uh, Tony Perkins, and then it was followed by Richard Burton, and then uh, somebody else uh, before Leonard did it, and Leonard was last to do it on Broadway. But the ushers came backstage to tell me that Leonard Nimoy came, and I, suddenly I got very nervous. <laughs> Leonard, who did it on Broadway and got wonderful reviews, was in the house. Uh, but after the show, Leonard came backstage grinning, and uh, I said, well, Leonard, what'd you think? And he said, you are better, which is preposterous. <laughs> but that's the kind of guy he was. And he drove all the way down from Los Angeles to see uh, Allegiance uh, in San Diego. And the whole cast was so thrilled by that. And we had a whole cast photo taken with Leonard. And he had indicated that he'll come to see it on Broadway. And that's the, one of the other hurts, disappointments that I have about uh, this uh, production that Leonard won't be there to support it. He was a very good supportive friend, a dear friend. There in spirit. He'll be there, yeah, together with my parents. Mm -hmm. um, I'll take a point of privilege and ask the last question. So as we've discussed, you are an actor, an author, a social justice activist, a social media superstar. Of all of these roles, is there one that you identify most closely with 
one that you hope you'll be remembered most for? My biggest passion is still acting and the theater. And this is a dream come true. It can actually happen. You know, I came to New York for the first time in December of 1960. And um, I, I wrote back home to my parents and friends that I was staying at the Sloan House. I didn't tell them that it was the 34th Street Y, YMCA. <laughs> it sounded wonderful, Sloan House. I came here chasing uh, the opportunity to do Broadway. Never happened. I did uh, off-Broadway. But now, at this age, I'm getting this opportunity, and it's a dream which I thought would never happen coming true. And I am so gratified. And thank you for the support that you've all already indicated. Leia Salonga. I mean, she's... <laughs> and I get to sing a duet with her in my debut production on the internment, one of my missions in life, and at 78 years old. So, you know, dreams can come true, and it's important for all of us to have our dreams and work toward achieving them. It can happen. A kid that grew up behind barbed wire fences on Broadway, taking my vows, incredible, only in America, on Broadway. Ladies and gentlemen, George Takei. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Jordan, thank you. For so great. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org.